0: live from your mind productions presents on the threshold episode six civilized part Welcome back to the Glazer Files. This episode will be finally finishing up Dr. Powell's report to the Home Office. August 12th, 1887. My experiment on the Abigail girl was intended to investigate whether she could detect any others who had been in contact with the lake or the surrounding cave system. Considering the parallels of her dreams with what Colne claims to have seen, there bears the possibility of some sort of underlying connection to the lake under the castle, perhaps acquired when she fell into the cavern. To that end, I have paraded a number of the castle's servant staff in front of her to see if she takes special note of the servant who had previously been immersed in the lake. She demonstrated no particular reaction to him, nor Erasmus, so I consider the experiment inconclusive. When she saw Adam again, she squealed with positive delight and asked to visit the lake with him, to which he agreed like an indulgent parent. Though I can't account for it, I felt obliged to say that she should not be allowed in the lake itself as she could not swim under the best of circumstances, let alone with her broken leg. Baron Erasmus seemed particularly agitated when I asked for his involvement, being almost incapable of looking at the child, but I decided against questioning him on the subject. What I had initially planned to be a quiet, contemplative lunch by myself afterwards turned out to be one of explosive confusion and revelation. Constable Wiggs marched into the dining room alongside two mean-looking men I take to be his henchmen, demanding to see the indentured servants. I was surprised at this question and informed him indentured servitude was no longer legal in the Isles. He said he knew this now, and so was most perplexed that Lady Alexandra Brown had told him that she had taken on the Traveler Woman and children to pay for their crimes in lieu of state punishment. At this, Alexandra entered into the dining room and insisted that there had been a misunderstanding. Indentured servitude is still legal in the Indian colonies, and the family had been sent there. In reply, the constable redirected his line of inquiry to demand information about the apparent breaking and entering of the constabulary the previous evening. Not only had the Traveler man been freed from his cell, but his personal vault had been broken into and his notes stolen. Alexandra claimed ignorance. An ever-reddening Constable Wiggs said that he had witnesses to place Adam and leaving the scene of the crime in its immediate aftermath. Alexandra calmly suggested that if he had such evidence, then he should present it to a judge and gain a warrant for Adamen's arrest. The constable stormed off, presumably to do just that. After his departure, Alexandra confirmed to me that she had indeed sent Adamen to rescue the man, that she had only wanted the Traveler family's apology, not their death. The sheer, self-destructive, reckless madness of her actions left me speechless. Why would she march the family to the constable, only to take them out of his power through lies and burglary, thus incriminating herself, her servants, and the Traveler family themselves? Why were... I've just had to insist that Baron Erasmus attempt sleep. It would seem that he has been awake for the last 46 hours, thanks to the assistance of cocaine provided by Colm in order to sustain the stamina for looking over the family's account books and considering financial alternatives. Why is Colm still even a guest at the castle if his investigation in London is complete? I am starting to envy the physicians of Bedlam for the sanity of their working Addendum, And I, in turn, envy the naivete of the Dr. Powell who wrote those words for the madness of the ensuing two days would be beyond compare. August 13th, 1887 I have overslept from the exhaustion of the previous evening. I will recount the unrecorded events of yesterday. After prescribing sleep for Baron Erasmus, I collected several vials of the lake for study. I mailed them to Professor Anderson in Oxford via Bolsover's post office. As I crested the castle's hill on my return, I spotted spoke in town. I started running towards the glint of flame to provide my medical services to any injured. As I ran down the hill, I saw Adamin running up towards the castle in manacles. The manacles on his wrists are resolutely seared into my memory, regardless of what lies Adamin might tell of them. I arrived to find the constabulary in Inferno like the mosques of Dis and the screams Oh, the screams I heard the sounds of hell that night in waking and this morning in my dreams They echoed from the basement below so we could not see their source, only hear their agony, but the interior burned so fiercely that none could get inside to rescue them. We could only attempt a bucket parade, but progress was slow. Adamen arrived soon after I did, and I know it was after I did, regardless of his word. By virtue of his charisma alone, he quickly took charge of the bucket brigade and began spinning a narrative to the crowd that he had been helping the constable with an investigation when the fire began and tried to save those trapped inside. And with his silver tongue, the father of lies instilled this story as truth to the crowd, even as he ineffectually directed the means intended to put out the fire. Not that the masses noticed or blamed him for the ineffectiveness of the efforts he had seized. Adaman truly appears to be kin of that Serpent of old, called the Devil and Satan, who deceiveth the whole world. We struggled all night, and at least we kept the blaze from spreading to other buildings. But before dawn, the constabulary had been reduced to ashes. The constable and his two deputies inside only charred skeletons. Even if I had not seen him fleeing the fire in chains, Adamon's story is nonsensical. If it had merely been an accidental fire, there is no reason for the victims to have been trapped in the basement below so quickly. Surely they would have smelled the flames as they first began and escaped at haste. No. I can see no explanation, except that he trapped them there, and likely lit the fire himself. I dare not voice any suspicions here. Adaman seems capable of controlling the townsfolk as if they were puppets, and he has demonstrated that he is not above homicide. I must make quiet preparations to depart, while to all appearances acting as if nothing is amiss. Baron Erasmus is gone. Alexandra claims that he departed for London last night. I had seen no forewarning that he would do so, nor any request for my accompanying him to provide continued medical care. In response to our request some days ago, two young geologists arrived late this afternoon from a nearby university of Little Account. A Mr. Edward Grayling and a Mr. James Paver. Though they attempted to conceal it, judging by their demeanor, I suspect that their interest was less scientific than commercial. I imagine identifying coal seams is an excellent means of private sector career advancement in their field. Regardless of their intentions, as I descended with them once more into the caves, they made numerous comments to one another on the qualities of the limestone, though I confess to not entirely comprehending their technical verbiage. When we arrived at the lake, Mr. Paver observed that the large rectangular boulder on the edge of the shore seemed quite out of place. Not only were there no sandstone deposits like it in the area, he couldn't recall where one of its precise blue-green hue could be found at all. Assuming its placement was artificial, which seemed likely given its relatively regular shape and distance from any deposits, we speculated as to how anyone might have moved it into the cavern, as much of the cave would have been too narrow for it to fit. We set aside those mysteries for the moment and embarked on the rowboat to attempt to measure the lake's width, leaving a lantern behind us on the shore to guide our way back. We rowed further and further onward, ever confident that we were moments away from striking the other shore, but it continued to elude us. Though none spoke, the growing anxiety within each of us was palpable, as the light from the lantern on the shore continued to shrink until it was little more than a pinprick. With a nervous laugh, Mr. Grayling suggested that we return to the shore, and neither of us objected. When we returned to the castle with perhaps more haste than was strictly merited, the two of them regained their confidence and insisted that we had merely rowed unevenly and not been as far from the shore as we had thought. But I remember the truth. I bid them adieu and return to packing. I will attempt to go to bed early tonight, but I have little hope for my rest. I have just been awoken by a Colm shortly after midnight who offered a most disturbing revelation. I've tried to find arguments against its truth, but it comports too well with her erratic behaviors of late. He came quietly to my quarter, stirring me from unpleasant dreams. He told me that Lady Alexandra had gone completely mad and ordered him to
1: kill me.
0: I could read the truth of his words in his face. I asked if she had said why she wanted him to do such a thing. He cleared his throat and almost perfectly
1: imitated Alexandra's voice. Dr. Powell endangers our aim. He is incorruptible as far as I can tell, and he is chink in our armor that will give away with the slightest pressure. He knows too much, has seen too much, and all that relates to him must disappear.
0: I knew instantly that those words were precisely how she would phrase such a statement. To hear them from Colm's throat, only confirmed his words. I am forever grateful that he chose not to act upon them, and at great risk to himself. We concocted a plan whereby in the morning we would go out to visit the moors together. From there I would hike to the train station and take a train back to Oxfordshire, while he would return to Alexandra and inform her that he had murdered me and left my body in a marsh. I asked him to join me in a flight instead, but he nobly insists on remaining to limit the damage she might do. Given that he is so fully aware of the cruelty of which she is capable, I can only salute his courage. I'm sure his father would be proud. Addendum. I still remain puzzled as to why Alexandra sent Colm to kill me rather than Adaman, as Adaman clearly had no qualms against murder and would have been more than capable. Perhaps her madness worked in my favor that night. August fourteenth, eighteen eighty seven. Though my concerns for Colm's well-being persist, I, at least, am currently safely on a southbound train. During our trek together, Colm shared some of his findings during his investigation in London about Baron Erasmus's blackmailing and kidnapping. He said that the elusive blackmailer I had known only as The American was in fact a Mr. Samuel Quinton, director of the Pinkerton's London office. Quintin had coerced Erasmus' companions into signing written testimony against him, both with blackmail against themselves and by offering their families lucrative shipping contracts for their compliance. Colm has further determined that the Baron had been held captive in the basement of the Westminster Hospital. Even after the invigorating hike, I am deeply tired. If only my nerves and my dreams would cooperate, I would deeply enjoy some rest. I will try again. August 15th, 1887. I never thought I would have loved my Oxfordshire dress this much, but it has been precisely the respite I've needed. I've spent the day putting my little residence in order, acquiring food from the grocer, taking solace in the classics, etc. But even surrounded by the comforts of academic domesticity, I remain uneasy. I awoke this morning to a sensation of choking and only slowly regained my breath as I shook off the tyranny of hypnosis. Tomorrow I shall seek companionship. August 16th, 1887. It has truly been wonderful to converse with my old professor and colleagues here at Oxford, catching up on old times, swapping the latest news of acquaintances, careers, etc. While I have scheduled a number of lunches with them to converse further, My curiosity has driven me to devote much of my time to discourse with Professor Albertson, who had received my water samples from the lake shortly before I had arrived. We discussed aspects of the sample at length, but the finding that seems to be the most fruitful was the presence of what Albertson had concluded to be spores from an unidentified fungus. My thought turn to Cook's The Seven Sisters of Sleep's chapter on the narcotic effects of Amanita and other fungi. I speculated aloud that if the spores of this unidentified fungus might similarly influence the minds of those who inhaled it, then exposure to these spores might explain the erratic behaviors of Alexandra, Adam and Abigail, perhaps even Cole. Of course, I also spent substantial time around the lake. I worry that I might be infected, but so far I am showing no symptoms of erratic behavior. But how would I know if I were behaving erratically? My drowning dreams are recurring with concerning regularity. August 17th, 1887. A letter arrived from Colm, as we had arranged. He speaks alarmingly of developments in Bolsover since my departure. Admin has only continued to rise in the town's esteem, especially amongst the children he has been giving the children swimming lessons in a nearby stream, which I cannot help but see as preparation for swimming in the lake under the castle. Furthermore, he has begun to purvey Adaman's Elixir, which he claims is a strength tonic and which, calm believes, contains water from the lake itself. Colm has also covertly spotted the children bringing small stray cats and dogs to Adamen, who disappears into the caverns with them. I fear we may have a true health crisis on our hands and that Adamen is spreading it, presumably under the influence of the very fungus he may be spreading. Professor Albertson and I have co-authored a letter explaining our concerns and Admin's likely role in the death of the constable to Davidson at the Home Office, in the hopes that they will move to contain it. Addendum. I have further come to hypothesize that the fungal spores may have been a contributing factor to Adamon's seemingly superhuman influence over others. Some sort of external power seems necessary to explain how he so completely convinced the two agents you sent to question him to leave after only a few hours and the conclusion that nothing was amiss. However, this would not explain his incredible persuasive capabilities prior to the reopening of the passage to the lake. I've already documented the findings of our research over the course of the next several days in a previous report to you, so I will omit them here and resume with the arrival of your agents. August 21st, 1887 the two gentlemen from the home office arrived today and we had a very pleasant lunch at the Queens Lane Coffee House. I was delighted to see that the chips still have the same delicious quality as they had during my university days. The agents seemed justifiably concerned about developments in Bolsover. They mentioned the two agents had already been dispatched northward to investigate. We furnished them with a copy of a complete account of our research. They- I think I may have just nearly experienced a heart attack. I praise fortune that I recognize the symptoms in time. I imbibed some salicylic acid and nitroglycerin before chewing on willow bark as I laid down and breathed slowly. Perhaps the strain of the past week's events has not alleviated entirely. I rest now. August 22nd, 1887. I learned this morning that Professor Albertson suffered a fatal heart attack last night in his sleep. The coincidence with my own experience last night would be too great for chance on its own even if i had not also found his office and laboratory ransacked this afternoon the samples of lake water stolen there was no sign of brute force entry on the door so the perpetrator must have had a key perhaps we were too liberal in disclosing the fruits of our labors to our colleagues for it seems that someone has stolen the tree and burned its roots. I no longer know whom to trust. Addendum: I strongly suspect that Professor Albertson was murdered with poison, and that the murderer attempted the same upon me. He, or someone in league with him, was presumably the same figure responsible for sabotaging our research. The autopsy was unable to conclusively prove foul play, but that is little proof. Many concoctions could produce such an effect and evade detection, such as various cyanide compounds. I can only guess as to how the poisons were administered. August 23rd, 1887 I sputtered my tea all over the Daily Telegraph this morning as I read the news. I hadn't even known that Lady Alexandra had returned to London, let alone that she had sufficiently returned to the good graces of her Aunt Adeline to be a guest at her manor. Of course, I had known that she was under an appreciable mental strain, But to repay her aunt's hospitality by drawing her into such a scandal is simply abhorrent. I can only speculate what effect this will have on her brother's already delicate constitution. Surely this must have been the result of the lake's effects upon her mind. I can only pray that she will be its final victim. I met with Colm today, and he informed me that Erasmus had arrived shortly before the tragedy, startling the servants with his haggard appearance and disturbed demeanor, demanding to see Alexandra. Colm said several of them vividly remembered the baron screening the phrase, Child Sacrifices. Addendum. I leave it to your office to determine the precise causes of Erasmus' breakdown and outburst. I have been unable to reach him since, and have been led to believe that he has taken up reclusive full-time residence at Wolsever Castle. Based upon my ongoing correspondence with Reverend Thomas Charles Hill, No children have been missing from Bolsover, and with Adaman's sudden departure to Parts Unknown, which took place shortly after this, the town seems to have largely returned to normalcy, though the children's theological questions to him have taken strange turns of late. Colm quietly returned the traveller infant to his family. It would seem that the brown siblings had intended to christen him as a legitimized bastard of Erasmus, being unwilling to produce their own heir naturally due to their proclivities. Thus, if there were any such sacrifices, the children must have originated from elsewhere. Regardless, I fear for whatever destination Mylan Adaman has departed, surely with more than enough samples of the lake's water for whatever sinister purpose he intends. Moreover, I fear his collaborators, whoever was responsible for poisoning us and taking our work, whether, and to what degree, they are in league with those who kidnapped Baron Erasmus Brown still vexes me. I found the newspaper article Dr. Powell was speaking of to verify exactly what unspeakable act Alexander had committed which he dared not name directly. On August 22nd, she was found dead of a presumably self-inflicted gunshot in the guest bedroom in which she was staying, shortly after Erasmus's arrival at their aunt's estate where his incoherent raving alarmed the servants. The article doesn't specify the contents of his rants, but considering Britain's harsh libel laws, they probably didn't want to mention anything that could paint a noble family in a bad light that they couldn't absolutely verify. To be honest, I still don't know what to make of all this. However, my background research did pull up an interesting fact of potential note, though I can only guess how it fits in, if at all. Throughout Europe, there is a recurring phenomenon called bog mummies, human corpses that have been almost perfectly preserved in the waters of peat bogs thanks to the highly acidic water, low temperature, and lack of oxygen preventing their decay. Some of these bodies are up to 10,000 years old, the flesh on their faces so pristine that they look like they could have fallen into the water just yesterday as you can still read all the subtleties of their facial expressions. Their faces have been frozen in those same expressions for longer than human beings have had writing. It's a sad form of immortality, eh? Dr. Powell mentioned that the air around the underground lake had an acrid scent, which might have meant that it was acidic, like the bogs, and thus it might have been an environment for preserving the corpses, which Colm said that he saw. However, this raises an interesting issue. Dr. Powell describes the caves as being limestone, but limestone is often used by farmers to make soils less acidic. So if that should be keeping the water neutral, then what could be making such a large body of water acidic? If any of you listeners out there know more about chemistry than I do and you have an answer, be sure to let me know. Once again, I feel like we're left with more questions than answers. But thanks to one observant listener, we have another lead to follow. She thinks she may have identified an anonymously published collection of poetry as the very poems that Erasmus was writing to describe his otherworldly experiences, which Dr. Powell briefly mentioned. I'll see you then.
1: Hello, I'm Gregory Moss, creator of On the Threshold. I hope you've been enjoying my little podcast. If you have, please consider my most humble invitation to take part in a collective ritual to appease the inscrutable alien intelligences which control all that we see and hear. By subscribing, commenting, liking, favoriting, sharing, and otherwise engaging with our show, you can help us draw the attention of these unknowable gods and encourage them to place this show before others who might also enjoy it just as much as you do. The ritual is so easy and convenient, and as a young podcast, every little ounce of favor from these unfathomable beings who secretly govern our world helps us immensely. Thanks, and stay safe out there.
0: On the Threshold is produced and distributed by Live From Your Mind Productions under an attribution, non-commercial, sharealike 4.0 international license. This episode was written and performed by Gregory Moss. On the next episode, The Brotherhood of the Mountain Unbowed.